Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Briefly in the New Testament, there is a rabbinical scholar that's mentioned by the name of Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council of the first century. And he took a hands-off approach to this new movement of people following Jesus of Nazareth. In the book of Acts, he famously said, Let them alone. If this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you can't stop it. And the Apostle Paul was one of Gamaliel's students as well which speaks to Paul's stellar education and his own intellectual abilities. Gamaliel's grandson also became a great rabbi, spiritual master. His name was Judah. Rabbi Prince Judah, often called just the prince or the master. And he would be the leading individual that would collect all of the oral tradition of Jewish academia in a book now called the Mishnah. And he was an unrivaled force in saving Judaism after the Romans obliterated their temple and their country. He loved parables and proverbs. And here is one of him called Ten Strong Things. He said, Ten strong things have been created by God in the world. The mountain, it is hard, but iron cleaves it. Iron is unbreakable, but fire softens it. Fire is powerful, but water quenches it. Water is heavy, but a cloud bears it. A cloud is thick, but the wind scatters it. Wind is fierce, but a body resists it. The body is strong, but fear crushes it. Fear is great, but wine banishes it. Yes, it does. Wine is powerful, but sleep ends it. Death is stronger than all, save one thing. Love, love saves the world from death. And one of his stories goes like this. There's a Jewish rabbi and a Persian fortune teller who became friends, as odd as that was for their time and as odd as they were together. But they would sit together, like two old men would do, and just observe life around them and comment on what was going on in their village. And one day, they're sitting there and they're watching All the people of their hamlet, the little villagers, go out to work for the day. And the fortune teller sees a man going by with his cart and a pack on his back. And he said, I perceive that this man will not come home today. He will die at work. He will be bitten by a snake. And the rabbi goes, God only knows. We'll see. And so they agreed to come back together at the end of the day and sit there and see if the guy came back from the woods from his work. So at the end of the day, there they are. And sure enough, coming right over the little horizon is this man with his cart. He's not dead at all. He's very much alive. And the fortune teller runs to him without explanation. 
and yanks the cart from his hand and looks inside, pats him down like he's being arrested, takes the pack from his back, starts shaking out all of the contents, and out of this backpack falls this giant, massive, poisonous snake. Well, all three men almost run away, but then they realize that the snake is dead. And so the fortune teller says to the man, I perceived that you were going to die today and be snake bitten, but here you are alive. What happened? How did you change your fate? And the man said, well, I just did what I usually do. Each day I cut trees in the forest and on my way to work today, there was a woman whose cart had lost its wheel and I just stopped and helped repair it. And at lunch today, we always share our lunch together and one of the workers was so poor he didn't have any lunch to share at all and so I gave him half of my lunch. And on my way home today, there were some children that were very poor and they were begging and I just gave them a part of my day's wages. And that's when the rabbi chimed in and he laughed and he said, my son, today you did a mitzvah, which is a beautiful Jewish word. It's a word that means to act with compassion or empathy towards someone who could never repay it. It's a fulfillment of God's love and God's law. And he said, today you did a mitzvah and that's why you were saved. And he turned to his fortune-telling friend and he said, when one loves from the heart, he changes the fates because love saves the world from death. Love that story. Love saves the world from death. That quote from Prince Rabbi Prince Judah is in agreement with Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul. They had the same teacher, by the way, and they come to the same conclusions. In our reading this morning from Romans 13, not nearly as eloquent as Anna reads, Paul says, verses 8 and 10, if you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirements of God's law. Love does no wrong to others, so love fulfills the requirements of God's law. Each time Paul uses the word law, by the way, in Romans 13, it's nomos in the original Greek. Had he been writing in Hebrew, he would have used the word mitzvah, by the way. Love is the fulfillment of all law. Love, acting with compassion and empathy and understanding, even when, especially when it cannot be repaid, is all that is required. And such love saves the world. We go on reading into verses 11 and 12. This is all the more urgent, this living a life of love. For you, now, for you know how late it is. Time is running out. Wake up. Your salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. The day of salvation will soon be here. Now, it's easy to object to Paul's timeline because he wrote this centuries ago, but the world just keeps on turning. It hasn't ended yet. But the truth is, as I've thought about it this week, if you're alive, your world is always ending. And the longer we live, the shorter our time becomes. For every generation, the world is, in fact, ending. If you notice how wired up we can get as we get older, when we sit down and watch the news or think about our country or think about the world, the older we get, the more anxious we get about it because we weren't paying any attention when we were young. But as time goes on and we get older, we start paying a whole lot of attention to it. Our world is ending. 
Our time is short. And to quote Andy Dufresne in the Shawshank Redemption, you got to get busy living or get busy dying. And when you get busy living, you live a life of love. It's the only way. Now, I've been in this little series I've called Inside Out for the last few weeks. And today I'm finally getting to the out part of that title. I've talked a lot about knowing yourself, your true self, that courageous person deep inside of you, all covered up by time and protection and fear and others' expectations. And I've talked about how God in Christ wishes to strengthen the inner person, how God's love can empower and enable us in ways that we've really always wanted. So it's natural today to make this turn to the outward life. When you are rooted and grounded and strengthened by love, that love becomes your standard operating procedure in dealing with life around you. You could say that love becomes natural or supernatural as a response to your surroundings. Now, a radical example that I've shared often is the case of a man named Dirk Willems. And here's a print from the 1600s about our friend Dirk. 500 years ago in Europe, a terrible persecution broke out against a group of small group of Christians known as the Anabaptists. Anna, A-N-A, Anti-Baptists. They got that name as a nickname because they didn't baptize babies. And they believed in believer's baptism. And so they were persecuted by both the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. Their descendants today are the Mennonites, the Amish, to some degree Quakers. And some Baptists actually trace their lineage back to this group of Anabaptists. And Dirk Willems was one of their leaders. And he was charged with heresy. What was his heresy? He was holding a religious meeting in his living room. That's it. That was it. He was not a part of the sanctioned church, so a bailiff was sent to arrest him to bring him to prison where he would be tortured until he could, would renounce his faith. So, it was a cold day on the day that the bailiff came for Dirk, and Dirk ran for his life. And Dirk was crossing an icy pond there in Holland, and that pond held his weight, but it did not hold the weight of the bailiff that was chasing him. And the bailiff falls through the ice. And Dirk Willems stopped, turned around, went back, and rescued the man who had been sent to arrest him. Do you notice the guy in the background doing this? What the heck? Right? That's kind of everybody's response. For his kindness, Dirk Willems was in fact put in prison and tortured for nine months. He would not renounce his faith. May 16th, 1569, he was burned at the stake. Now, the question that Mennonites and the Amish and the Brethren and other Anabaptist groups have asked for 400 years is why did Dirk Willems turn back? Joseph Lichty, who's an Anabaptist scholar, says it like this. Willems did not make a rational choice. It was not an ethical decision. It was an intuitive response. 
No combination of mental calculations could have carried him back across the ice. The only force strong enough to take Dirk back across the ice was an extraordinary outpouring of love. And the only love I know like that is the love taught and lived by Jesus. Dirk Willems responded as he did because he had been so spiritually shaped within that his response was reflexive and instinctive. Well, this story teaches me a couple things. Number one, I got a long way to go. I don't think such a reflexive, reflexive, instinctive response is that evolved and developed inside of me that I would turn back and rescue a person that is after my very life. I think I would probably let him swim with the fishes with his new set of icebox running shoes. But it also teaches us something else. If ever any of us can get to a point of compassionate, true compassionate living in our lives, it will be because of what happens inside of us, not because of any exterior rule or regulation, expectation, or something that religion demands. This kind of love, this kind of life, is impossible to produce from the outside. Something radical and revolutionary has to happen within us in order to love and live like this. Which is Paul's exact point. In the text, Paul started listing some of the prohibitions from the Torah, the law of Moses. In verse 9, he says, for example, the commandments say you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. That's four of the big ten, the ten commandments. And then he adds these and other such commandments. So he's, he's talking about them all. And he sums it up in one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. That was the teaching of Gamaliel. It was a teaching of Prince Judah. It was a teaching of Paul. It was the core teaching of Jesus. They are all in agreement here. Love your neighbor as yourself. That fulfills all religious and spiritual demands. And that is a love that comes from within. Laws on the outside are powerless to affect internal change. Clarence Jordan used to say it like this. He said that religious laws, religious rules, are like taking a vicious dog and chaining it to a tree. And then the owner says, my dog is a good dog. He's never bit anybody. Only because the chain is robust. If he were to be let off the chain, he would be a terror. And so Jordan was saying that when we focus on the law, when we focus on the rules, all we're really doing is manufacturing a heavier chain. As if the chain itself would keep people in line. But it won't. There has to be a transformation within. We live our lives from the inside out. The rules, no matter how numerous they are, no matter how restricting they are, no matter how severe they are, outside rules won't work for very long. Now, go back with me 20 years. I want to remind you of something, and if you weren't paying attention 20 years ago, (laughs) then maybe I'm telling you this for the first time. 
2001, a man named Roy Moore, Chief Justice Roy Moore of the Alabama Supreme Court, installed a two and a half ton granite monument of the Ten Commandments in the rotunda of the Alabama State Judicial Building. In 2003, it was removed by court order as a violation of separation of church and state. And then a few months later, Justice Moore was also removed by court order from the Alabama State Judicial Building. Well, not long after that, Mr. Moore's monument that weighed over 5,000 pounds went on a tour. It was loaded onto a flatbed truck and a tractor trailer drove it all over the south so that people could come and see this giant inscription of the Ten Commandments. Now, I watched that monument, I was living in my hometown then, and I watched that monument make its first stop in Dayton, Tennessee. Dayton, Tennessee is just north of where I grew up, and the organizers chose Dayton, Tennessee very much on purpose, because in 1925, the Scopes Monkey Trial was held in Dayton, Tennessee, and that's where so many people believe that America started going to hell in a handbasket right then, 100 years ago, when evolution and Darwin and all these other nefarious people started showing up. So the Ten Commandments went to Dayton first. Now, I watched what happened there. There were about 75, 100 people there. I've got a picture for you. There were about 75, 100 people there in support of the Ten Commandments. There was one counter-protester. One atheist. And this is what the crowd started saying to this man. You ought to be shot. Somebody get a rope and let's hang him. Put him before the firing squad. And one man said, I'm glad I don't have my gun with me today. You would be dead and I would be in jail. Thou shalt not what? Huh? You, is the shady irony lost on you? Here were ardent supporters of the Ten Commandments. They had come out on a rainy day to see a stone rendering of them. And they immediately call on the violation of the Ten Commandments by calling for the death of a person that they disagree with. This is why religious rules alone can never be enough. Because they do not change what's inside of a person. They might get you started. The rules are excellent guardrails. They help you learn to color inside the lines. They even function for a while so long as you see everything in monochrome black and white. But they don't change people. They don't transform attitudes. Not once, not one time has a thou shalt not prohibition or a thou shalt commandment changed a person's heart. A person's heart. Not one time. Might have kept them out of trouble, but it has never changed a person's heart. No commandment has ever made a person more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, more kind, more good, more faithful, more gentle, or more composed. That's the fruit of the Spirit, by the way. And the only thing that does that is the Spirit inside the human heart. And at the end of Paul's words about the Spirit, he says, there's no law against such things. It can also be translated, no law can produce such things. And Paul is exactly right. So, 
If I've been unclear, let me be very clear right here. Religion, religion has never changed a single person. Not one. But love has. The Spirit has. Christ has. The essence to which all of this religion has been clumsily pointing to and toward, that's where change takes place. Yes, I think that people need places like this one, buildings like this one, places to gather in buildings that are more immaculate and beautiful than this one, or not. I think we probably need songs and Bibles and theology. It's all part and parcel to the journey, but never mistake religion for God. Never mistake a religious book for life of the Spirit. Never mistake our external rituals and rules for internal transformation. If the world could be saved by religion, God's kingdom would have come centuries ago. Because the world is eat up with religion, but it's not eat up with transformation. If religion were enough, we'd be there already. But it takes love. And that's a bit of a heart changing equation, not just keeping external rules. So it goes something like this, I think. You receive God's gift of love in Christ. It's implanted in your heart. God's infinite reservoir of grace is seated within you. And your only responsibility is to let it flow. It's not what you do. It's not what you produce. It's not what you bring to pass. It's not about you at all. It's all about God all the time. All you do is let it be as God would have it be. And I will tell you something that you already know. Because if you go out here and try to love people because the external religion says so, you're going to be really up against the wall because I have met some people in this world that are really impossible to love. In my power. I can't dig deep enough, can't try hard enough, can't give near enough, can't flex enough willpower. It just will not happen. And I'm not talking just about Adolf Hitler and Vladimir Putin. It's your boss, it's your co-worker, it's your son-in-law, it's your rival, it's those people on the other side of the issue or in a different political party. There are some real jerks out there. And Jesus comes along and says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, how are we going to get that done? The only way it gets done is if Jesus is doing it for us and within us. Because we can't do it by ourselves. We just, we just can't. And you shouldn't go out there and think, well, I'm going to make this person more loving. <laughs> no, you're not. I can't even make myself more loving. There's just some people there. Do you remember, uh, what was his name? This thought just intruded in my mind. Uh, in, the, in the Charlie Brown Peanuts, Pigpen, I, I loved him. But you could, just, you could see him coming for a mile, smell him coming for a mile, this noxious cloud just, just circulating around. There's a lot of people just like that. Right? Am I lying to you? Oh, their, their face is on your mind right now. You got them in your head. You know who I'm talking about. For you, it's one person. For somebody else, it's another. But we all have these pig pen people. 
We all, we all do. We can't, we can't clean them up. We can't even stand to be around them. If you're going to even get to a place of loving toleration for such people, it's on your knees saying, Lord Jesus, you're going to have to do this for me because I can't. Right? The consistent voice of Scripture is that to know God is to know love. To know God is not to be more doctrinally entrenched or correct. To know God doesn't mean that you will be more committed to dogma or denominationalism or puritanism. If you know God, doesn't mean you'll be more certain, more inflexible, or more stubborn in what you believe. To know God is to know love. And I meet people all the time who say to me that the solution to the world and the solution for the church is more. More rules, more churches, more this, more that. Well, I'll, I'll give them this much. We do need more of something, but it's more love. And the only way that we come to know more love is to know God better. Because the more you come to know God, the more loving person you can become. We don't put our attention on our, all the actions in the exterior. We focus on the gift that God longs to give us. And there's only one way to do that. Get out of the way. The old medieval mystic Meister Eckhart said, there is only one spiritual discipline. Only one. It is surrender. It is emptiness. Let it go. Relax. In fact, if there's one thing I could say to American Christians, it would be this. Will you just relax? Just just. Chill out a minute. Unclench your jaw. Unclench your fist. You think you're the first people in the world to ever see trouble? You think, you think you're the first culture that's ever looked out and said, I don't know what's happening here? Hell, nobody knows what's happening here. But that doesn't stop us from focusing on what we should be focusing on is, oh my God, how can I become more made into the image of Christ? So that everything that is wrong in this world, I will not be a part of the problem. That somehow, some way, by your grace, I can become a part of the solution. This is a prayer that St. Francis is credited with. I think it's some of the most beautiful words. I pray it for all of us today. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. To be understood as to understand. To be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life.